This audio recording is of Restoration Road's regular Sunday service, November 18th, 2018, at Restoration Road Church in Snohomish, Washington. The speaker is Sam Ford. More information can be found at rdchurch.com. First Thessalonians this morning, chapter 2, verses 13 through 16. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when we receive, when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out, and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them at last. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Thank you for being here with us. I'm going to pray. Um, I am actually, if you have your Bibles, I would encourage you to open them up to the letter of 1 Thessalonians. I reluctantly am putting some verses on the screen today merely because there's a lot of them and I think that we would spend a ton of time searching. Uh, But I want to encourage you to read your real Bible, to get a real Bible. There's nothing wrong intrinsically with the Bibles on the phones other than there's so many other things to look at and there's only one thing to look at when you actually have a Bible. And so uh, I love to hear the turning of pages as we uh, read when we're here together. So I'm going to pray and uh, if you bow with me and we'll let God do what he's going to do. Father in heaven, I thank you that we can gather in this place in a unique moment during our week to be in your presence in a mysterious and wonderful and special way. Our world is full of noise, Lord. It's full of distraction. It's full of busyness. And I fear that at times you and your word gets lost gets overwhelmed as our minds are filled with things that are not of you, Lord, even good things that are from you that distract us and pull us away. Lord, I pray that this morning you will center us. I pray this morning you will remind us that we gather here not as much to get, but to give worship to you, to praise you, and to be reminded of what you have done for us in Christ to be centered and reminded that this world is not all there is, to be reminded that, Lord Jesus, you're returning again, and that our destiny is to live in your presence, to dwell with you face to face, and we look forward to that day. In the meantime, Lord, you have given us your Spirit and Holy Spirit. I pray that you will stir us this morning through your Word, that you'll lift the veils from our minds and our hearts, and you'll pierce us With the word implanted, words of instruction, words of conviction, words of encouragement, words of comfort, whatever it is we need, you alone know. But let your word do its work in us this morning. 
It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. So last uh, May, this past May, Pastor Mark and I had the privilege of traveling to Washington, D.C. for some um, training at a church there. Uh, it was an amazing time for us. And we had a little bit of free time. And so if you're in Washington, D.C., you should take advantage of going to all the museums there. They're all free, uh, minus one, which is the one I really want to go to, which is the Museum of the Bible. Ironic, you got to pay for that bad boy. But it's a huge museum. Um, and it is six or seven different floors, I believe. And uh, it is amazing uh, and a little overwhelming, full of Bibles uh, and full of Bible history. Um, and we had a limited amount of time to be there. Uh, and so limited, I mean like a couple hours. And I found out with six or seven floors, that's limited. And so we were rushing around and uh, I don't even know if more time could have uh, necessarily helped. Um, that's not the thing I wanted up there. I wanted this up there. Let's see if it works. There we go. Um, there was, I don't remember everything was there. There was some pretty cool things like Martin Luther's personal Bibles there. And there's all kinds of stuff. That you're like, wow, this is really cool. Um, but um, there's one display I remembered, which is this one, because it really struck me, and, and it's really unforgettable. It's, uh, I think it's in the center of the building. I'm not sure, but it's a big circular room. It's pretty big. This is just one little section of it, and the room is uh, bordered by all these bookshelves, and there's just all of these books that look like that um, across, and it. it probably represents near 7,000 volumes of books. Um, and there are five different colors of spines, and it ranges from um, dark brown to light yellow like you see right there. Now the brown spines, the, all these books represent the different languages of the world that are there. So 67, 88, something like that, well, nearly 7,000 languages in the world that have been identified. Um, and so this is representing all that. And so the dark brown ones, uh, or the Bible themselves, is the full translation of the Bible. So they have an English Bible, obviously, and then these other languages, Chinese Bible, and they would have, you know, uh, lined. And then the shades would change to light yellow, and light yellow are the languages in which there's no Bible, not even a chapter of the Bible that is yet translated. So the different shades kind of talk about that spectrum. The brown is complete, and then there's like another one that's uh, a New Testament only, another one that's like 25 chapters, and then another one that translation has just started, or one chapter, I can't remember. But there's a spectrum to all the way down to there's no translation at all. And so as you read and then you learn, and, and you can read this and find this on the internet as well, uh, but according to example like uh, Wycliffe Bible translators, the Bible is available, um, or some part of the Bible is available in approximately 2,900 of the 6,877 languages. Um, there are currently 554 uh, languages with a complete Bible translation. So 554 out of nearly 7,000. Um, and there are um, New Testaments available only in about 1,300 of those languages. Uh, and then there's many more languages, so of that 2,900, that have at least one chapter of the Bible translated in their language. And so uh, this is, again, this room is just full of these. You can see the two colors there as the room kind of get a circular picture. And then there's one wall that has this sign on it that basically says that there are 993,426. I assume that's uh, current. It may have gone down one or two. Uh, but that is basically the number of chapters 
that need translation before all languages have access to the Bible. It's almost a million chapters. Now, you may or may not know this, but some cultures that they're trying to translate the Bible into don't even have a written language. So they have a verbal language that they have to create a written language for and then obviously create um, a written Bible for. And so um, all that to say that translation of a particular language, and if you look at the like, languages of the world, there's some that you're like, oh, I think I've heard of those people. And then it's like, bah, bah. like it's like some African tribe. You're like, I don't know who they are. I can't even read that. And so it's pretty vast and impressive and daunting and overwhelming because the majority of the books are yellow. And so you talk about the Great Commission, you're like, yeah, we've got some work to do. And it takes approximately, you take one of those languages that doesn't have even a written language as an example, it could take up to 30 years to get a Bible translated for them. And just a New Testament alone can take five to 20 years, depending on the language and what the situation is. Suffice to say that Bible translation is not an easy task, but what is most impressive is how many people have given their lives and their time and their money to make sure they can translate the Bible into languages. People that go and live in the middle of nowhere, learn the language so they can translate maybe a chapter before they die. And if you read the history of Bible translations, you'll read that there's actually a quite a bloody history regarding it. The people have given their lives so that a culture or a people, even the English people, may have a Bible in their own language. All this to say that as has been described or identified before, Christians are a people of the book. They're people of the book. And the question is, why are we a people of the book? Why a people of the Bible, which is really a collection of 66 books that tell the one story of God? But Christians are a people of the book because we believe that it is more than just a dead book. It's not just some moral tale. It's not just some myth. It's not just some good story that should be retold over and over again. It's more than a book. That Christians believe that this is God's self-revelation. This is God's, our Creator's very words. That Christians believe that there is nothing more powerful in existence than the Word of God because everything came into existence by His Word. I mean, you think about all the things that God could have done in the beginning of Genesis in describing how the world was created. The Lord clapped. And it was. The Lord winked. The Lord whatever. But it was the Lord spoke. His words went forth and everything that is in the universe, all of life and all of creation, came into existence. That is the power of God's Word to speak something where there was nothing. Everything came into existence and everything continues in life because of God's Word. And the Bible has a lot to say about itself. Scripture has a lot to say about itself. The Word of God says a lot about the Word of God. As a brief kind of survey of that, Isaiah 40 says in 
was quoted by Jesus, unlike the grass that withers and the flower fades, the Word of God endures forever. Isaiah 55.11 says the Word goes forth and it never, ever, 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 ever returns empty. It always, always, always accomplishes the purpose that it sets out to accomplish. Jeremiah 23.29 says the Word of God is like fire and like a hammer that crushes rocks to pieces. Psalm 119, which I began this morning, says it is a lamp. The Word of God is a lamp to guide us and to light our paths in a very dark world. The Proverbs, more times than I could even count, talks about the Word of God being perfect and true and key to identifying wickedness and understanding justice and finding righteousness and delivering us from evil. And then, of course, in the New Testament, 2 Timothy 3.16 says, the Word of God is not just dead words written by dead men. They are words breathed out by God, helpful for every good work. And then Hebrews 4 says, again, the Word of God is not dead. It's living. It's not just stagnant. It's active. It is able to discern the depths of our heart. This is how the Word of God describes itself. Jesus Himself said that the words of God gave life. Jesus said that those who heard and obeyed God's Word were blessed or happy or satisfied. Jesus prayed that His disciples would stay in the world. They'd be sent in the world, but they would be set apart, sanctified, protected by the Word. Jesus said in His temptation that came from Satan, I know many of us are like, I was tempted by Satan. Doubtful. Not that he has bigger fish to fry, but maybe. We know Jesus was confronted by Satan, tempted by Satan, powerfully, terribly, and Jesus' response to him was what? Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. See, to be a people of the book is not to be a people who merely read the book. It is to be a people who believes that God speaks life through His book to us. I think it's uh, very well said by Jonathan Lehman, who is a pastor and writer and author. He said it well, to read the Bible is not merely an exercise in intellectual comprehension. It's an opportunity to stand before the throne of the King of the universe. It's an opportunity to encounter Him. That God communes through communication. Now I'm not sure that all of us, I fear that few of us approach God's Word that way. My concern is in this culture and in the busyness of our lives and just as we prioritize the things in our lives, I think our perspective of God's Word changes and it feels somewhat dutiful and obligatory and I should probably do this because that's what good Christians do. 
And what if you viewed the Word of God differently? What if your theology of God's Word is part of the problem because you don't understand what's happening when you open that Word? That you're not just reading, you're not just gaining knowledge, that you are actually encountering the God of the universe and He is speaking to you. That He wants to instruct you, that He wants to encourage you, that He wants to strengthen you, that there is some kind of relationship, communion that is happening there beyond just knowledge. That is what we mean when we are people of the book. And so this series is called The Normal Christian Life. As Paul writes to this young church of new Christians, encouraging them and instructing them, The very phrase, the Christian life, rightly identifies life as saved in and belonging to and shaped by Christ. You probably heard the phrase, the Christ-centered life before. But my emphasis this morning is to suggest that the Christ-centered life perhaps is best or better described as the Word-centered life. Not the Word-surrounded life. The word-centered life. So if you look at Thessalonians chapter 2, where we began in verse 13, the people of Thessalonica uh, were saved when they heard the proclamation, when they heard Paul preach the gospel, they believed. There were some who responded. This makes sense that Paul in his letter to the Romans said that faith comes from hearing and hearing through the Word of Christ. And so they heard the Word. They responded to the Word as the Word did something in them and to them. Here's what Paul writes in verse 13. Thanking God for their new faith as evidenced by how they've responded to the Word that He preached the news that he proclaimed about Jesus Christ. He says, We thank God constantly for this, that when you received the Word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the Word of men, but as what it really is, the Word of God. Now, Acts 17 records like, okay, what is the Word actually that he spoke? What are the words that actually he said? Acts 17 is the planting of Thessalonica, it's the place where um, he actually went into the synagogues, and if you read verse 17 or Acts 17, verse 2, he says he went into the synagogues, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, saying, Jesus is the Christ. So he walked into the synagogue where they would be reading Scripture. They'd be talking about the coming Messiah, the Savior, the King, the Redeemer. And as they read, for three weeks, he talked to them about Jesus. And he said, this Messiah you're waiting for, this Messiah that you are looking for salvation in, he will die. He will suffer according to the Old Testament Scriptures. And he will rise again. And this Savior has come. His name is Jesus. So the Thessalonians heard him preach news about Jesus. Proclaim something that had happened in history. Particularly that Jesus had come. The Son of God. The Messiah had died and risen. 
and some believed and some did not. And it's likely that in three weeks, he didn't just preach that gospel. He got a lot of time there. Imagine he took all the scriptures that they were talking to, the scriptures they were familiar with, Isaiah and, and Genesis, and he started putting the story together saying, it's all about Jesus. And the story does begin in Genesis. And it's again about His Word, right? In Genesis, God created by His Word. And then He had man and woman, male and female, Adam and Eve, and He blessed them by His Word. He said, be fruitful and multiply and enjoy the fruit of the garden and enjoy fellowship with Me. But then He gave a word of warning. Do not eat for that tree. For on the day you eat of it, you shall die. So he created with his word, he blessed by his word, he warned by his word, and they did not heed his word. Instead, they listened to the words of another, another counselor. And having rejected God's word, they fell into sin, and in receiving the ability to know or the knowledge of good and evil in many ways, they began to define for themselves what is good and what is evil according to their own words which is the situation we find ourselves in the world today. People running their lives and defining morality and all kinds of identity according to their words, their feelings, their experiences, apart from the Word of God. But Jesus. Jesus entered the world. The Word of God became flesh and dwelt among men. The Word of God came to save us, came to restore what we broke, came to, in many ways, save us from self-rule, from self-destruction. As we went upon our paths, as the Bible says, doing what we thought was right, not knowing it led to death, Jesus says, I'm coming to save you. I'm coming to restore you to relationship with God. I'm coming to restore you and restore your love for God and your love for His Word. And those go together because if you view the Scriptures as the words of some kind of cosmic killjoy who wants to make your life hard, you misunderstand who God is and what His Word is about. Because He is a loving Father who wants to give you His best. And that's why Jesus can say, I give you these commands so that your joy will be made full. Not so your life will be made hard. I've heard it said that you can measure a person's opinion of God by his or her opinion of God's Word. That a person who loves God loves His Word and a person who hates God rejects what God has spoken. I know using words like love and hate seem really strong. But there are many people who talk about loving Jesus and loving God, and then when you bring Scripture to bear, they say, well, I don't like that. Love-hate is a pretty good contrast, I think, because we're not talking about hatred and persecution as much as a deep, abiding condition of heart. Man, I love God, and I love that this Father wants to speak to me because He gave me His Son, and, and knowing He sacrificed everything to, to bring me back into relationship, He's got to have some good things to tell me. He gave everything. Why would He be lying to me? Why would He be directing me wrong? He's a Father who loves me. That kind of condition as opposed to like, whatever. You just, you just, you just want to make it difficult. 
person who hates God rejects what God has spoken. Just as reading God's Word is not an intellectual exercise, accepting God's Word is more than just acknowledging information. When they accepted it, there was an inward welcoming. An inward embrace that really you and I have no control over. It's God changing us and softening our hearts and giving us that heart of flesh so that the Word becomes our desire and He causes us to begin to desire and to walk in His ways. It's salvation. That's what we're talking about. Romans 1.16, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And don't forget, the gospel is news. It's proclamation. Burr, 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 burr. This has happened. Right? He says, I'm not ashamed of the good news. I'm not ashamed of the proclamation. I will send it out there. Why? Because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. This is how people are saved. So the Word of God was received by the Thessalonians. And that Word was the Gospel. And the Gospel is not, as I said, it's news. It's not advice on what you're supposed to do or ought to do. It's not instructions on here are the seven things you have to do so God will accept you. It's news about what God has done through His Son in history to fix what mankind, what we broke with our sin. It is what God has done to restore us. There's a new King, a Savior who has come. It's news. I believe it was Ravi Zacharias who said this, that the gospel does not make bad men good. The gospel makes dead men alive. It brings to life. So when they say like, well, they accept it. And we're like, I think that's probably true. We said, no, God is saying something here. God has done something here. God, we're listening and, and I want to hear. And I want to know more. So God speaks His words and He speaks them through broken men like Paul and like us. And He speaks those words to a people and they are saved. That's what happened in Paul at Thessalonica and in Philippi and in Corinth. And it's what happens in Snohomish and Lake Stevens and Everett and Mill Creek and everywhere today. God speaks His words through you and does something in the hearts of other people. It's mysterious and beautiful and powerful. And what that should do is bring comfort to us because many of us, when we think about preaching the gospel or sharing the good news or just sharing God's word, God's truth, God's perspective, God's warnings, God's commands, whatever it is, I bet one of your first thoughts is, I can't. I'm not, I don't know enough. I'm not persuasive enough. And I would encourage you to stop thinking about yourself because it's not about you. If you only focus on yourself and what you're able to do and what, who you're able to persuade, you will never share the gospel. The focus is on God's power. Do not focus on your cleverness, but on God's power through your basic commitment to open your mouth to tell somebody about Jesus. God has the power to save, as we see in Thessalonica, the most hardened of hearts and the most hostile of environments. You just have to believe that you hold dynamite in your hand. You hold the cure to cancer in your hand. 
You hold the hope beyond death in your hand. The key to joy in life in your hand. It's not about your ability to persuade and to, to convince. It's about your commitment to share. Because the power resides with God. So that's what happened. Paul shares, changes, and there's people in our lives I know, we go, no way! There's no way this person will ever believe this. They look at the Bible right now as something silly. The story of Jesus as mythical. There are many of us, if not all of us in this room, who are Christians who at one point felt the same way. And you go, what changed? The story didn't change. The Word of God did something to you through His Spirit to open up your mind and gave you a new heart. But that new birth is the only beginning, right? It's, it's just a beginning. God and His Word are not done with you. Check out what it says. What starts as redemption continues as renovation. I love the word renovation because Chip and Joanne are so popular, right? The fixer-upper idea, that idea that like, man, this house has been purchased, a foundation, maybe the house has been lifted, been restored in Christ, and then it's renovation time. And we are being renovated back to the design that God originally made us to be. Restored, if you will. But he says here, he not only accepted it, as the Word of God, he says, which is at work in you believers. What a simple little phrase, but it's so powerful. The Word didn't just accomplish its purpose in salvation, it continues to work through what is called our sanctification. And that's just a clever way of saying the Word of God is active in us. The Word of God is changing us. The Word of God is renovating us. The Word of God is conforming us to the image of Christ. It's doing something in us. And insofar as we engage God's Word, our hearts are further transformed and our lives are further reformed. I love what he wrote to the Philippians. Paul is in Rome, likely he's in prison, writing back to the church in Philippi. One of the churches, remember, he was stripped naked, beaten publicly, arrested, all those things. A church was still planted in the midst of that hostility. So he's writing back to this church. And it's a letter all about joy. And in Philippians 1.6, he says, Look, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. Again, think of that renovation metaphor. I love it. He didn't say, hey guys, make sure you complete all the work. He's saying the Lord is doing something. He is renovating something. He is changing something. And if you've ever renovated a house, it is a wonderful, horrible experience. Because what happens, especially if you have a designer come in, let's just say the designer, and he goes, yeah, that wall's got to go. And you go, whoa, 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 I, I kind of like that wall. He goes, no, it's totally rotten and it's in the way. Mm, I, what's a little rot, right? I mean, come on, that's, that's a nice, and he whack, knocks the wall down. You're like, whoa, 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 I thought that supported everything. Like, wait, it didn't support everything, but now it's really ugly. And there's dirt everywhere, and, and, and I mean, yeah, 
Welcome to our lives. It's a perpetual renovation project that Jesus is going through and restoring us that is never actually fully done until we're with Him. But it's ugly at times. It's painful at times. But ultimately, we know He's bringing something to completion. He is working something that's beautiful. And you have to be convinced of that. He says this, this word is at work in you. That God is doing something in you. And He further says in Philippians chapter 2, something really powerful. He talks about working out your salvation with fear and trembling. And, and, and in many ways, I think it is pressing into your salvation and, and, and digging into it and meditating on it and learning more about it because you are saved, you are being saved, and someday you're going to be fully saved and that you'll be fully restored away from the presence of sin. And in this process, what does Paul say? It is God who is working in you. Both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Again, the Word of God is doing. God is doing something not just through us, but actually to us. And so the question is, well, what is He doing to us? What does the Word do to us? This Word that James says becomes implanted in us, right? It's growing. And, and, and what is it growing? How is it growing? If you read Psalm 19, which is a beautiful psalm, it's kind of in two halves. One is about the general revelation, general revelation of God and the glory of God in all of creation. And then the second half is about His special revelation and His speaking His Word uh, brings Him glory. Psalm 119 is like a whole large song about God's Word. And Psalm 19 is kind of a nice little abbreviation of it. And if you read it slowly about what it says God's Word is doing in us, it says the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Now, I don't know about you, there are times and there have been times where I just need my soul revived. I need my soul lifted. I need my soul inspired. Not just my mind inspired and engaged. Not just my body feeling better. Like my, the deepest parts of me revived. That's what the Word of God does. It says the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. I'm not sure if you feel confused at times in life, if you don't understand what to do with decisions, if you feel stupid at times. The Word of God promises wisdom to the simple, understanding, clarity. I fear sometimes the Word of God is the last place we look when we're trying to determine and make decisions. It goes on. It says, the precepts of the Lord are right. Rejoicing the heart. Happiness is so circumstantial at times and, and so temporary, but joy of the heart is enduring and lasting despite circumstances. And I wish I could manufacture that. wish there was a pill for that. Or easy, you know, religious ritual for that. But what it is is the Word brings joy. 
The Word rejoices the heart. The commandment of the Lord is enlightening to the eyes. And more than anything, I think, in our world today, we need an enlightening for our eyes. Because what is right and what is wrong, what is good and what is bad is becoming very confusing in the world. And the Word of God promises to give an enlightening. It goes on to say, The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. But I'd like to focus on the last part. Speaking about the words of God, they are more to be desired, are they, than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. I think for many of us, myself included, we believe that many of the solutions in our life and problems will be resolved if we have more money. A little more security. I don't need to be rich. Just a little more wealth. And the Word of God says, man, it's, it's, it's more desirable than that. Than a lot of money. And it's sweeter Right? They didn't have many, they didn't have like, maybe they had chocolate then, but they didn't have the sweets like we have today, right? So honey was the, the sweeteners. Like it's sweeter than honey. And I would encourage you if the Word of God is bitter to you, if the Word of God is not tasty to you, if it's like always eating vegetables, right? I got to eat my carrots again, right? I pray that that will change for you. That you will delight in God's Word because you will see it as the tasty honey coming from a Father who wants your best. He wants to lift your soul. and wants to give you clarity and strengthen you when you're weak. I was recently asked, why do you need to read the Bible again and again and again? Can't we just read it one time Get the information. I know it isn't once just enough. And I would say yes if it is just a book. And if reading that book is just an intellectual exercise. But my point is it's not just a book and reading it is not just an exercise. It's communion with God. To say in many ways, and I know We've all said this at some point. To say that I don't have time to read God's Word. I won't ask for hands, but I'm sure every one of us has said, I don't have time. We've filled our lives with all kinds of things. I, I, I wish I had time for God's Word. I remember the days when I did have time for God's Word, but I, just, I, can't, I can't afford that 15 minutes, a half an hour, whatever. I don't have time. If reading God's Word is more than an intellectual exercise, if it is in fact communion, is it possible that you're actually saying, I don't have time for a relationship with God? I know in my marriage, if I said, well, I have time to go through the stuff that makes a marriage work, making sure there's food on the table, making sure the house is clean, making sure that kids are in bed, making sure that, you know, whatever's followed that are the rules of the home, but babe, I don't have time to talk with you. I can't, spend any, I, I can't spend any time actually connecting intimately with you. 
We've got to do stuff. I think all, maybe too often we are so committed to doing stuff that we ignore the most important things, which is communion with God. And sometimes that stuff is even religious stuff. Where even myself, like, I can put a sermon together and you think, well, that's your communion with God. Well, is that the only communion with God or should I be having communion with God apart from having to have a sermon? Because what if I'm not a pastor? It's relationship with God. Because I want something done in me. I want Him to continue to work in me. So when someone says, so I need to read it again and again, I simply say, well, the Bible talks a lot about bodily training, and bodily training is good, and there are people in our culture today where that is a major deal. Now, it's always been a major deal. If you're in the 80s, you know about jazzercise. In the 90s, it was Zumba, and like now it's CrossFit, right? It kind of goes to different stages because everyone's like, I'm out of shape. Let's start a new program and make it work. It's like, cool. And people get really disciplined about it. I mean, they put all kinds of money and time, and I'm not saying it's bad because we need to take care of ourselves. But Paul says often bodily training, like that's temporarily a good thing. Now, I don't know if you knew this, like there was a day when I was athletic. I have pictures to prove it. It's interesting, when I show my kids pictures of me in like, you know, my senior high school or, or early 20s, they're like, wow, dad, you, I mean, you were really fit and stuff. And I'm like, what are you saying? Like, you're saying something without saying it. That's a compliment, but it's really not, right? So there was a day when I played Lots of athletics, and I was always lifting weights and playing soccer and to call it. It was great, right? It was like fit. And what I learned, even you can look this up now, that like you began to become out of shape in 72 hours. That your muscles actually begin to atrophy, not like in the worst ways, but you start you become less strong, less quick, whatever it is, if you've stopped working out. Now, people who work out know that, right? If I'm going on the treadmill every other day or whatever, it's much easier to go on the treadmill the next day because I'm still in shape. How long do you think it takes to get out of shape spiritually? I wonder if it's a lot faster than 72 hours. Paul speaks about the desires of the flesh. It's kind of like um, carbohydrates, right? They never stop attacking us, right? They're always overwhelming us in all the good things. Well, spiritually, and it's a strange metaphor, spiritually, right? The desires of the flesh are never on ceasefire. They are always assaulting. They are always attacking. And they attack our feelings and our thoughts and our perceptions. They attack our very desires and our loves. And the question is, well, how do, you, how do you battle against that? I know if I'm being attacked by carbohydrates, I go work out. The Word of God promises to renew us and to transform us and to center us especially with all this noise coming, right? All these messages, all these temptations, all these things coming from within and from without. The Word of God is what centers us. The Word of God is what strengthens us. The Word of God is what corrects us and encourages us and establishes us in God's truth, which promises joy. 
So the Word of God is doing something in us insofar as we are actually looking at it. And even if we've only looked at it for a little bit, I would argue the little bit you have, it's doing something to you. Now the question is, how do I know? Where can I see that that's happening? This is where Paul goes. He says, he indicates that like, there's some evidence to know that the Word of God is working in them. Like He sees something happening and as their lives become more and more conformed to Christ, that begins to contrast with the world. And when your life becomes more like Christ, you will begin to contrast with the world and that contrast brings conflict. Because often that contrast without you saying a word feels condemning. I believe someone else said this, but it's a quote I have here. It says, without, a, without doubt, the verbal proclamation of God's Word effectively draws a line in the sand between two groups of people, those who accept God's Word and those who reject it. With our words and with our lives, we draw a line in the sand, and people don't like lines in the sand drawn. This has been the same since the Garden of Eden, the world is broken for one particular reason. Because men rejected His Word. They do not fear God. They do not thank God. And they do not obey His Word. And those who stand, who dare stand for God's Word and dare speak God's Word will be hated like Jesus was. Why? He is the Word. He was the Word become flesh. And so, a simple question, well, what did the world think about Jesus? That's not real hard to answer. They killed Him. Romans killed Him. Jews killed Him. Everyone wanted Jesus dead. They killed Him. They hated Jesus. And if they hated Jesus, they hated the Word. And insofar as we attempt to align our lives with His Word, we are going to stand out from the world and be hated. And I know, hated? Really? Yes. This is the experience of the Thessalonians. And he says, look, you're, you're following the example. You're imitating the other churches. In other words, this is happening everywhere. They're suffering like you. People are hating you, particularly these Jews who chased Paul out of Thessalonica toward uh, Berea and beyond. And he speaks, he says, look, this persecution, he charges them with five things. He, you killed Jesus. They killed the prophets. They drove God's people, Paul and his teams, out of the cities. They're displeasing God. And then he says something really powerful. He says, they're opposing mankind by hindering them from speaking. See, we don't view it that way. But that's what's happening. We almost feel like we're offending people if we share the Word with them. And maybe you don't feel that way. I'm concerned that many Christians do because they misunderstand what cruelty is. Oh, we don't talk about religion and politics. Oh, you know, if that's good for you, that's fine. Like, is it the truth or not? Is it the cure to our death or not? Like, that's the question. Because if that's the case, 
Don't believe the lie that speaking about God's Word and sharing about Jesus and standing for what is right is cruel to impose. The cruelest thing of all is to say nothing. That's what's cruel. Even if it's going to bring conflict. Even if it's going to be discomfort. The preaching of God's Word with our mouths and with our lives is going to offend. That's why Isaiah can say, well, God can say through Isaiah in 55.11 that the Word of God never comes back empty. It always accomplishes its purpose. And the strange thing is, we often believe that purpose is going to be some wonderful, pleasant thing. Oh, it always accomplishes its purpose. What if its purpose is to bring conflict? Jesus said, I bring a sword. If you have your Bibles, turn to 2 Corinthians. That would be to the left of Thessalonians chapter 2. You see, the Word of God goes forth and has an effect on non-believers and an effect on believers. So it always has an effect. For non-believers, for those who have rejected God's Word, it does one of two things to them. It either condemns them in their sin and they can't stand being told that they are sinners worthy of death or converts them. They acknowledge that they're a sinner worthy of death and that Jesus gives grace and forgiveness and love and invites them to believe. And for the believer, the Word of God goes forth and it either convicts them of their sin and or conforms them to Christ. We receive it. It changes us. It moves us as we look more and more like Jesus. So something happens. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, I love this verse because it gives us a real clarity on how we can expect to be received, if you will, in the, word, in the world. It says, but thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of knowledge of Him everywhere. And we think of fragrance, right? Think of perfume, good smelling things. So there's a smell, there's an aroma, okay? And you're like, okay, the Lord is, is spreading our smell, well, His smell, the knowledge of Him everywhere. Excellent. Everyone must love that. No. For we are the aroma of Christ. I didn't know if you knew you were an aroma. You're welcome, right? Insofar as you're, you're speaking, living, representing, standing for Christ in His Word, right? You have an aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. One smell, two peoples. The smell goes out and people are like this. Hmm. That's fantastic. Or, oh, what is that smell? And he says, to one a fragrance from death to death, and to one a fragrance from life to life. We smell. We're an aroma of some kind. And that aroma is either compelling or repelling. And I know what you know, like when you're an aroma through just your life without saying a word, people avoid you. I know this from personal experience in my family. Many are not Christians. They know I'm a pastor, but contrary to popular thought, I don't come to family gatherings and set up a pulpit and start preaching, 
right? That's not what happens. But they know what I stand for, which is different than them. They know what I live for, which is different from them. We've had those conversations, but I don't have to say a word, and I'm a little stinky. And you know what we do with stinky people, right? Whether it be morning breath or whatever, like, yeah, you're a nice person, but just going to kind of keep my distance. It is the smell of death, and some people will repel by it and stay away, and some people will attack it. But to those who believe, it is the smell of Christ, and it's beautiful, and it brings life. What's interesting, in the case of the Thessalonians, they are smelling it up, and they are paying the price. But what's so encouraging to Paul is their faith in the midst of being attacked. And it's a brand new church. But even as a small church, what amounts to an insignificant church in the scope of maybe all the other churches are planted, the report of their faithfulness in the midst of conflict is going forth to all of Greece. Everyone's learning about it. You know one of the most disturbing and yet inspiring things to dwell on? The faithfulness of the persecuted church. It's amazing if you think about your prayers of thanksgiving, if you have that. I'm not saying you have a moment of thanksgiving, but when you thank God for particular things, how often most of our thanksgiving prayers are very self-centered. I don't mean that in the most sinful way. I just mean they're we're thanking for our kids, we're thanking for our homes, we're thanking for our jobs, we're thanking for opportunities, thanking for our health, whatever. How often are we thanking God for the faith of others? I think of people here in our church who are suffering, whose faith is a ministry to me, and I'm thankful for them. And it's easy to find stories in the persecuted church of people who are faithfully standing for God's word under threat of death. Faithfully standing for God's word when their families have been killed and slaughtered. Faithfully standing for God's word though they're in prison. Did you know that that's happening often today? In the comfort of this nation, I fear we have become so insulated that we no longer rejoice over the things of God or the Word of God or the faith of God's people. There are people today, when you give them a Bible, it's the first Bible they receive and they rejoice. There are people who don't have a Bible today and I bet many of us have five or six on our shelves. And the things of Christ have become just an optional extra thing when you have people dying. It's so encouraging to read and sometimes, as weird as it may sound, I envy the kind of persecution that brings that kind of attachment to God's Word. What makes it difficult to be a Bible-reading and believing and even proclaiming Christian in North Korea is very different than in North America. But here's what I will say about that. That environment that breeds hostility like the North Korea is perhaps no more dangerous than an environment like ours of comfort that breeds passivity. So as we end here, Paul ends this little section speaking about these persecutors. About the Jewish people that have chased him out and are making it difficult. The Jewish Thessalonians in this place. 
He really speaks about their spiritual condition in many ways, and he says that they're filling up the measure of their sins, and God's wrath has come upon them. Now you know that the Jews were God's chosen people. The Jews were the ones that received the oracles, the word of God first, codified first. The prophets of Israel were the ones who spoke to God and for God. And yet this is the one people that Jesus said, look, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and it is these same scriptures that are telling you about me. You realize that these are people who have the Word of God. These are people who read the Word of God. These are people who proclaim the Word of God. And yet, these are people who rejected the Word of God. This isn't about just reading the Bible and knowing the Bible and even telling other people about the Bible. This is about centering your life on the Word of God. Centering your life on the Word of God is not the same as surrounding your life with the Word. It is centering it. It's saying, this is, I'm going to set my life on this. I'm going to have this be a lamp to tell me what to do next in my life. This is going to be the place where I seek encouragement. This is going to be the place where I find strength. This is going to be the place that I allow to correct where I might be wrong. That's centering your life. The Jews had the Word and they rejected the Word. And while there is a final wrath that is coming to all who reject Jesus, Paul says there is a wrath that has come. Romans 11 talks about the Jews and how there was a partial hardening that has come upon Israel. They have not accepted their Messiah and in many ways they are blind to it. And while there are certainly Jews that are coming to accept Christ, we have more than enough majority of the Jewish people who have not. I have a whole side of the family that refuses to accept Christ as the Messiah, who are Jewish. In many ways, they are blinded. In many ways, they are hardened. And in many ways, I do expect a conversion, if you will, a remnant to believe. But just as the gospel came first to the Jew, and then the Gentile, so I believe the wrath of God is going to come first to the Jew and the Gentile. At the time Paul is writing, it's interesting, God is using Rome to bring some wrath upon the Jews immediately. If you read Acts 18, which is Acts 17 where the church is planted, Acts 18, the Jews have been kicked out of Rome by the emperor. And they've been kicked out of Rome because they're causing all kinds of disturbances because they're hating the Christians so much. So the emperor's like, you guys can't gather, actually get out. About 20 years later-ish, the Roman emperor is going to destroy the temple. That's pretty wrathful. But we all know that in the end, there is a wrath that is coming when King Jesus, according to Revelation, stands with a two-edged sword coming out of his mouth and he judges the quick and the dead. And by saying sins are filling up, in many ways it can mean lots of things, but if nothing else it means that there is a limit to the rebellion and there is a measured amount that is going to be reckoned. The end is coming. The end is near. As Peter says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise in His return, as some might count slowness, but He is patient, wishing that 
none should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And so the word is for limited time still going forth. And the word is going forth through broken men and women, saving more people, changing more people, encouraging more people, and yes, offending more people. And more people from many different nations, some nations who have yet to have the Word of God, are coming to faith. It's interesting when we don't see conversions at times in this American church context We believe there's no conversions happening anywhere else. And I will tell you, there are many people coming to faith across the globe and around here. More people are being saved every day, and the end is coming. So the question for all of us is this, as you hear God's Word, as God's words go forth and says, look, there is an end coming. There's a Savior who has come to save you from your self-rule who has come to say, I know you have sinned. I know you have rebelled. I'm ready to forgive, turn from your sin, and enjoy life with me in the newness that I bring. And the question for all of us is this. How you will respond to God's Word today if you know there's no tomorrow? We have no guarantee of tomorrow. If Jesus returned right now, I would be jumping off this stage and floating up to him and to be rad, okay? I want it to happen. I want his return to come. How would you respond to God's word today if you know there's no tomorrow? Will you respond to the news of the gospel? That it's not advice, not instruction, but it is truth to believe about what God has done for you by taking your place where you deserve to die and living the life that you should have and giving you that righteousness. I speak not just to non-believers, though. Because at the end of Hebrews, actually in the letter of Hebrews, the writer speaks to those who believe. And I'll close with this. Take care, brothers and sisters, lest there be any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. These are not my words. These are God's words. God is saying, be careful. Be careful lest there be an unbelieving heart in this room that is leading you away from the living God. Implying that that happens. But exhort one another. I'm exhorting you right now. We should all be exhorting one another as long as it's called today. Because we don't know what's happening tomorrow. That none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. The lies of the enemy that were there in the garden saying, no, 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 no. Don't believe God. Don't trust His Word. He doesn't know. No, you don't. You got more important things to do. For we have come to share in Christ if we indeed hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, today, if you hear His voice, not mine. If you hear His voice, don't harden your hearts. Get on your knees and receive His grace. Believe. Believe in the crucifixion of Jesus. Believe in the resurrection of Jesus. Believe in the return of Jesus. And for those of you who are Christians going, I'm struggling in that belief. 
then ask God to help you in your unbelief. Let's pray.